0: I invite you as you're seated, to turn in the Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Uh, So last week, uh, I wanted to talk about two big things, but we only talked about one. Uh, So just to remind you, we talked last week about how Paul learned to see himself and the Christians around him through the reality of, of their life together with Christ, both the reality of their future life together in perfected glory, and the reality of their current life together through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that thread that we looked at last week is still woven through our passage this morning. You'll hear it when Paul says things like this very famous verse, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. I'm really excited to explore this thread more with you this morning, Uh, but I'm actually maybe more excited to add to it that second big thing I wanted to cover last week but didn't get to, which is how Paul uh, harmonized the two desires that were in conversation in his heart. The desire to stay and help the church and the desire to go be with Jesus. Paul essentially said, as we saw, I want to be with Jesus, but I also want to be here giving you Jesus. Now, at the center of that desire is Paul's statement immediately before our section this morning. It's how we ended our section last week. It's verse 10. I'm going to read that for you. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, the idea of Christ's judgment is usually terrifying. terrifying. But what's interesting here is that for Paul, Christ's judgment unites his love for the church and his desire to be with them and his love for Christ and his desire to be with him. And since terror does not produce love or anchor it in the soul, uh, I started questioning if my initial response of terror fit with what Paul is actually saying here. And then I really started questioning my initial understanding when at the end of this section, which we're going to look at next week, Paul uses the judgment of Christ as the way to encourage the Corinthians to open their hearts wide to him. And again, terror isn't something that creates wide open, vulnerable, welcoming hearts to each other. Right? When is the last time you've yelled at someone and they're like, Oh man, I just want to open my heart to you. <laughs> right? So what I want to look at this morning is what the fear of the Lord and the judgment seat of Christ meant to Paul here and how it shaped his ministry. And I want to do that because if we come to understand the fear of the Lord the way Paul did, I believe that we will also find that it will anchor our desires and actions in Christ's own love, in his own open-heartedness and holiness, And it will also help us to learn to see everyone through the gospel, which is to preview it about the way that Christ was judged for us. So that's our modest goal this morning. Uh, Let's read our passage. Uh, Then we're going to chase that goal by looking at three things, why we care about this ministry so much, how you can join us in this ministry, and then finally, why you should care about this ministry too. And they're on the board. I know they're online, so you can refer to them there. Uh, Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Uh, We'll pray, and then we'll start our reflection this morning. Let's listen to God's Word. Paul continues from where we left off last week. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word, and what really deserves about 50 sermons. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this word, uh, which uh, we can feel the power of, which we can sense the profundity of, but Lord, we know that its depth, its wisdom, its power, its life will not affect us unless your spirit goes forth with it to bless it to us. And so, Lord, we ask humbly uh, that you would give us ears to hear your word, minds to understand it, hearts to believe it. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and receive and respond to your word by faith, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is why the Apostle Paul and Pastor Timothy and really their whole ministry team behind this letter care so much about this specific ministry of reconciliation. And here's the short answer. Their ministry of reconciliation is how everyone knows whether that's the apostles themselves, or the church, or the world that's watching them. It's how everyone knows that they are representatives of God, and that's all verses 11 through 15. But before we unpack that any further, let's remind ourselves of the larger issue here. Uh, One of the problems of preaching through a letter section by section is it's kind of like going down a Wikipedia rabbit trail, Right, You start looking at Wikipedia for an answer to a specific question about monarch butterflies, and 10 or 15 minutes later, you're reading about the possibility of water on one of Jupiter's moons. That may or may not have happened recently. Uh, And then you realize, what was I even doing? Right, The details are important, they're interesting, but sometimes they can pull you away and down some trails that get you away from the larger point. So let's remember the larger point. The reason why this whole section of the letter exists is because the Corinthian congregation is not welcoming back a repentant sinner. It's been a while, but back in chapter 2, Paul says this. I'm going to read it for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul begs for the congregation to take action and openly embrace this brother in love, to greet him at church, to pray with him, to invite him over for dinner. And not just for this brother, but for Paul and Timothy too. Remember back in chapter 1, we read how Paul and Timothy changed their plans to visit because they knew that if they visited at that time, if they had done what they had planned, that it would end up being a, a much more painful visit than was needed at that particular time. And I think if you put these two things together, the problems they have and relating the apostle and Timothy because they changed their plans and the problem in receiving this brother who is repentant, and needs love, I think you can see that the congregation of Corinth just had a real problem with bitterness, forgiveness, openness, and I think generosity. It was a church where you couldn't really be a sinner in reality, but only in theory. Uh, you couldn't be a failure or fail. You couldn't have big weaknesses. I think it was a church where disagreement was probably socially dangerous. Uh, it was certainly a church where forgiveness was hard to get and apparently pretty fragile. right? You felt like you were always a half a step away from just being rejected. Now let me ask you, does that culture, does that community, does that look like Jesus? No. If you just read the Gospels, which Paul clearly knew, we've seen reference after reference to the Gospel of Matthew and John already in this letter. Jesus is constantly surrounded by people who many for the first time are welcomed and loved by him. Jesus listens to them. He opens his arms to them. He forgives them. He helps them. He feeds them and clothes them and prays with them and for them. And he does it again and again. And again, just ask the disciples and the tax collectors who were always around him. See, the culture of Jesus' community when he was ministering uh, bodily on earth is one where forgiveness is solid, where weakness was welcomed, and where failure was met with mercy. It's one where sinners are given tangible help and time necessary to grow and to mature in a community that actually wants them to be a part of it. Think about Nicodemus. How long did it take him to be embraced? To embrace the community of Christ? Did Jesus ever cast him away? Think about Peter, Mary Magdalene. You can probably add your own names to the gospel. See the community and the culture that Jesus created. Uh, is a community of welcome, hospitality, love, and mercy, and solid forgiveness. And that's the community that Jesus wants his churches to have. Now, I know that all of this might seem kind of far-field from our passage, but it is not. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. What does Paul mean when he says, What we are is known by God? Does he mean... God knows that we're apostles. We have authority. Listen to us. I don't think so. I don't. I I mean, that hasn't really been something he's talked about at all here. See here, I don't think Paul is interested in office or leadership or those kinds of things. I mean, maybe they're in the background. They probably are in the background, but they're not in the foreground. What is in the foreground? What have we been looking at for like the last three or four weeks Jesus's presence in his people. Right, Paul has been talking about carrying around the death of Jesus and manifesting the life of Jesus to each other and to the communities that we're in. Before he talked about uh, how, about that, he talked about how God's people's lives shine with the transforming glory of Jesus. He's talked about the way that Jesus brings comfort and hope and help, and welcome through his people by the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul says God knows what we are, what he's saying is we are people who have met Jesus and been changed by him, and we know he can see that, and we hope you can see that too. Now, why would Paul expect them to be able to see that right? It can feel a little maybe arrogant, right? Hey, you should be able to tell that I'm from Jesus, (laughs) right? Well, here's why. Because they live with sinners the way that Jesus does, with humility and sacrifice, openness that makes them vulnerable to being hurt, as we can see throughout his tenure with the Corinthian Christians. They live with people in a way that's generous, even when they are sometimes ungrateful or abuse that generosity. They live prayerfully with people who uh, can't always stay awake and pray with them. Uh, They cry with people. They laugh with people. And they help people grow in godliness by giving them the word and then walking alongside them as they try to follow the word. See, they practice these things that made people like Herod ask, how can Jesus really be important? But that drew sinners and tax collectors to Jesus by the hundreds. I mean, isn't that what Paul is getting at when he says in verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, the things that people like Herod care about and not about what is in the heart the things that the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners and the disciples cared about when they saw Jesus. What does he want them to say when they boast about them? Look at how powerful and wonderful and good-looking and rich and all that stuff they are. No, he wants them to say, you know what? Regardless of what you say about how like ridiculous these guys sound, whatever you say about them, I can tell you one thing. They're seriously going to love me the way Jesus does. That's what he wants them to boast about, to those who boast about outward appearances, their love. See, this ministry matters. This ministry of reconciliation matters because it reveals Jesus. And speaking of revealing Jesus, it it took me a while to understand Paul's point in verse 13, where he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, notice that word for, right? This is the rationale Paul gives for why they live like Jesus so they can be boasted about, right? We want you to boast about this for, if we are beside ourselves. So to be beside ourselves means that they are doing things that appear irrational, a little crazy, like suffering, like carrying around the death of Jesus, like writing letter after letter and making visit after visit to people who don't really seem to want them in their lives, Exposing themselves to danger and harm for ungrateful people. It looks crazy. Well, if we look crazy, Paul says, it's because we're trying to live for God. Who did something crazy. Who sent his only son. Who came down from heaven to earth. To take on the form of humanity so that he could die in our place. So that we would not perish but have eternal life through faith in him. And then when Paul says, if we are in our right mind, it's for you, he means this. So to be in one's right mind doesn't mean to be crazy, doesn't mean to not be crazy, doesn't mean to be sane. It seems to be an idiom that means to be in control of one's responses, to be in control of yourself. So when Jesus was sinned against, as happened so often, did he rage and have angel armies destroy people? All the kids say no. Oh, that that would be cool, right? Uh, Because angel armies are cool. Uh, On the other side, did Jesus control his temper, control his sadness, and craft a response in words and deeds that showed holiness and godliness and opened a door for people to walk through if they chose to repent and follow him? Look at Paul and Timothy. When you say bad things about us, Paul and Timothy say, why don't we throw a temper tantrum? How dare you? Do you know who we are? I'll show you. Why don't we do that? Well, because our ministry is about showing you Jesus. We want you to see Jesus. And so we endure sin and we work to show you a right mind of grace We control our responses to give you Jesus, and we do it again and again and again and again, because as Paul says in verse 14, and I love this verse, the love of Christ controls us. At the heart of this entire ministry is their desire to receive the love of Jesus, to be controlled by the love of Jesus, so that they can give the love of Jesus And that then leads us to an interesting question, doesn't it? Which is, how does the love of Christ come to control us the way it came to control Paul and Timothy? Don't we want that? Like, wouldn't that be just what we need to fight against bitterness and stinginess and inhospitality and impatience with each other? The love of Christ controlling us? How do we become more and more controlled by Jesus' love? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? starting in verse 14 through verse 17. I'm going to read those again. Verse 14, "'For the love of Christ controls us because,' here's the reason, "'we have concluded this, "'that one has died for all, therefore all have died. "'And he died for all, "'that those who live might no longer live for themselves, "'but for him who for their sake died and was raised. "'From now on, therefore, we regard no one "'according to the flesh.'" Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, I know there are so many details here that we could and should drill down on, but I'm going to just take a big picture look at this uh, because it will make it easier for us to take home and practice. And also because I want to start connecting this to our opening question, which was, uh, how does Paul view the judgment of Christ? So two things here. First, Paul focuses on the universal sufficiency of Christ's death. So theologically, there are two very important words that we use to talk about the death of Jesus, and they are stupidly similar to each other. And I'm sorry about that. It's not my fault. I was not there when they picked these terms. Uh, But here they are. You ready? Sufficient and efficient. Sufficiency and efficiency. Sufficient means that it makes a thing possible. Efficient means it made a thing happen. So theologically, we can talk about both the sufficiency and the efficiency of Christ's death. So we'll say that Christ's death is sufficient for everyone, which means anyone can come to Jesus and be saved. Anyone. Jesus' sacrifice is not a scarce resource. It's not something that we have to share or take turns with because there's not enough to go around. It's sufficient and abundant for everyone. But while Christ's death is sufficient, not everyone is saved. Not everyone repents and believes in Jesus. And that's why we talk about the efficiency of Christ's death, which means those Jesus saves. And from a reformed perspective, which I believe is the biblical perspective of the Old and New Testaments, we would say that Christ's death is efficient, for the elect. And now I know that that raises some issues for some people, and that's okay. We can talk about that. I want to have those discussions, but I don't want to get into the questions of just and unjust, and how is that fair, and all that right now, because those debates that people rightfully want to have are actually beside the points of this text. Because here we see Paul, who wrote the chapter on Christ's efficiency and how it meets an election in Romans 9, right? Vessels prepared for wrath before the foundation of the world. Here we see that same guy who wrote the chapter on election say that he views all people through the sufficiency of Christ's death. One died for all, therefore all have died. That's a way of saying I have never met a person who Jesus can't save. I have never met someone who cannot be transformed and sanctified. I have never met a person who the love of Christ cannot cover or someone who Jesus would not walk 500 miles through desert sand to sit down at a well next to so that he can give her or him Jesus. And just to prove it, this is exactly what Paul means. In verse 15, he says, And he, that is Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul here talks about the universal sufficiency of Christ's death and its efficiency, its effect in the lives of those who believe. So he died for all. That's sufficiency. That those who live... Meaning Christians, right? That's efficiency. Those who have been affected by Christ's death. And by the way, what is the effect of Christ's efficient death in Christians' lives? It's that they would now live their own lives for Jesus by showing the world the power of Christ's death and life by learning to live as Jesus calls them to live with everyone. And this is why Paul says in verse 16 this amazing sentence this is amazing. From now on, I'm going to show you why it's amazing, but it's amazing. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So when Paul talks about the flesh, what he means is our sin nature. That part of us that loves idols, controversy, hatred, gossip, anger. The flesh is what created social media, right? Amen. <laughs> All joking aside, the flesh is what deserves death and hell. So when Paul says that because of the universal sufficiency of Christ's death, we regard no one according to the flesh, what he clearly must mean is that he no longer thinks of people as objects of wrath and justice and death, but as objects of love and forgiveness and life. He's learned to view them through the same set of glasses that God viewed the world when he sent his only son out of the overabundance of his love. And I don't want to go long in this, but I want to give an example of how we tangibly view people according to the flesh. So in movies, when bad guys die... Don't We Rejoice. Uh, I just watched a movie, which I'm pretty sure I watched earlier this week, maybe it was late last week, and the bad guy gets rammed off a cliff by Liam Nielsen in a semi-truck, which is pretty sweet. Um, Or so I thought. And it just so happened uh, that as I watched this occur, uh, my wife sits down next to me and I look over at her and I say, good, yeah, that's what he deserves. I'll do the same thing to him. And then in the back of my head, which I didn't share, with my wife. I heard the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit through the Bible say, is that really what Jesus wants you to think? See, we can train ourselves to look at sinners as the objects of wrath, death, and justice and rejoice when they get it, even though we are, as God's people, the objects of love, forgiveness, and life and rejoice that we got it. And when we look at people that way, we are regarding them according to the flesh And by the way, that kind of regard is exactly what creates churches that don't look like Jesus because that perspective justifies their poor treatment of other people and even rejoices when we inflict pain on them. You're just getting what you deserve. And I'm happy about it here in my heart. Paul says, no. The sufficiency of Christ's death teaches us something different. People are not, in God's eyes, in the first instance— Objects of wrath, but objects of love. And they need to meet the one who loved them to death on the cross. Right? They need to meet Jesus, who died on the cross to save sinners, to give them life, of whom you and I are the chief sinners, who have received it first and foremost from Jesus as a gift. Final point why you should care. It's going to be very quick. Notice that Paul says surprisingly uh, that though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we do so no longer. And what he means there is that at one point uh, we thought Christ did deserve to die. He didn't, but we thought he did. Uh, And here's how we know it. That's Paul's point. In verses 14 and 15, he talks about Christ's death on the cross, about how he bore our sins and our transgressions. And also in verse 21, he says this amazing statement, right? This profound theological observation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everything in these last verses is focused on how Christ bore in his own body our punishment for sin. And if you read the gospel accounts, those who regarded Christ according to the flesh Herod, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Roman soldiers arrayed around him, the people gathered on the cross, they regarded Christ the same way. Good, let him die. If he's the Son of God, let him come down. But he's not, and he's getting what he deserves. But of course, Jesus did not deserve to die. And through his undeserving death, he gave us life and made us in him to become the very righteousness of God. And his life has this transforming effect on us, doesn't it? So much so that Paul says in verse 15, that super famous verse that everyone should have memorized. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, there's so much here, but just for the time we have left, notice that one of the old things that's passed away in our lives in this context and has been replaced by the new creation power of Jesus is the way we view each other. As people who need to be and can be and as Christians are reconciled to God made friends I mean that's just verse 18 through 20 all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation therefore We are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us. The effect of Christ's new creation work is to make us ambassadors for Jesus. People who look at others not as objects of divine wrath, but as objects of divine love, as people who can be redeemed. It changes us so that we cry when people sin, and we mourn when people face judgment, but we rejoice when the worst of us finds mercy in Christ. And this is why the judgment of Jesus is actually encouraging for Paul because the judgment of Jesus is the thing that gives life and salvation. There's more I want to say. We're going to talk about it more next week, Lord willing, when we look at how all of this helps us open our hearts to one another. But for right now, let's just end with this. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, where he bore our sins to give us life, because that is sufficient for everyone's salvation. We need to learn to see that in Christ, God's judgment, in the first instance, is aimed at life. It's aimed at life and repentance and reconciliation. And we need to learn to see everyone around us as those whom God wants to love back to life through Jesus. And as we prayerfully grow in this perspective, our church will more and more have a culture that shows that we are from Jesus. And we will be better and better ambassadors for Christ. And God will make a more and more forceful appeal through us as he extends Jesus' forgiveness to everyone. And as we watch people repent and believe in him, let's make that our goal. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that when you look at us, you see a people you want to minister to and sacrifice for. Uh, You see a people who you want to love back to life and have loved back to life through Jesus. Uh, Please teach us to see each other and everyone we meet with the same perspective so that we would be faithful ambassadors of Christ uh, who minister the redemptive presence of Jesus to those who are around us. And we pray this all in His name. Amen.